Well, welcome everyone to One Life Community Church. My name is Rich, and I'm one of the co-lead pastors here. And I uh, just want to say thank you for choosing to be online with us for the first Sunday of 2021. Also want to say Happy New Year, if that hasn't been said yet. Uh, we count it a privilege and honor that you would choose to be joining us today. And uh, we also want to make sure you are having the best online experience. And to do so, we would love for you to go to onelifeseattle.org forward slash live. That's our online platform. And there you'll find our chat line, our Bible and prayer apps, and our notes section and more. And uh, it's really the best way to connect online. And I highly recommend today taking notes. We're going to get a little crazy today. So if you have the app, you can do that or some paper, that would be great as well. As Greg said earlier today, we are launching a brand new sermon series called Stories of Old, in which we're going to be taking the next seven weeks or so exploring a lot of various Old Testament stories. And with each story, we will be engaging some of the deeper theological wrestlings that come with them. Some of the stories we're going to be looking at include the story of the prophet Miriam or the story of Jacob and Esau or King Hezekiah and the call of Abram and more. But today we're going to be talking about one of the most famous stories in the Bible, the story of Noah and the flood as found in Genesis chapter six through nine. Now, Hopefully you all did your homework uh, that was sent out in the all church email uh, trying to take an early look at Genesis chapter six through nine because there's no way we're going to go through all of that. But if not, no worries. The story is familiar enough to pretty much everyone. So you shouldn't have a problem engaging either way. But before we do anything, let's start our time with some prayer. Father, Son, Spirit, we thank you for this season, Christmas tide, in which we celebrate your arrival of God with us, present with us in the midst of everything that's going on. And so we can celebrate and uh, give thanks for everything you did in Advent to enter into our world in um, the most amazing way, transforming our world around us. And so God, this morning as we look at a text in many ways we've heard a thousand times but maybe haven't heard in um, the way you intend, help us to hear from you, help us to engage with you, help us to wrestle with you and um, draw deeper in our relationship with you as a result. I pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So as we begin, I want to be super clear. There is absolutely no way I'm going to cover all the details of this story. There are books and books and books and resources and commentaries just on this one story. And to be honest, it's um, fascinating. I, as I was reading, I got so into it and there's um, so much. Um, if you want to learn more when we're done, let me know and I will pitch you some of those things. Um, but my hope is to help us move from a story that we often want to ignore due to the questions that arise from it to instead seeing it as an important story pointing us to the goodness and grace of Christ. Now, as I said, the story of Noah and the ark and the flood, Genesis chapter 6 through 9, is one of the most famous and controversial passages in the entire Bible, centered around a global catastrophe and a floating wooden zoo, if you will. This story has captured the imagination of people for ages. And until modern times, most Christians assumed the story referred to an actual worldwide event that happened in a relatively recent past, 
And this interpretation of the flood continues to be a central feature of young earth creationism. Just in the last few years, we had someone recreate the ark as described in the scriptures, and you could go see it. This is a picture of it. Um, There you go. I'm going to leave it at that. That's something you could go see. Um, But the discoveries of modern science have uh, kind of also brought this explosion of new knowledge about the ancient world of the Bible. And it's had uh, decisively challenging ways to help us think about how we interpret this text best. And this includes the work of many Christian scholars and scientists who were and continue to be guided by a belief that all truth is God's truth, that scripture is inspired, and that the testimony of God's creation should not be ignored. But the scientific and historical evidence is now pretty clear. There has never been a global flood that covered the entire earth as we know it today, nor do all the animals and humans descend from the passengers of this one boat. So right from the start, we're faced with an issue that comes up often with scripture, especially this story, and it has to do with how do we relate science and history and scripture? And sadly, what many of us do is we just kind of try to avoid those crazy Old Testament stories and just kind of focus on the New Testament, right? Old, new, old is old, new is new, let's focus on the new. But is that really what we should be doing? You see, when discoveries in God's world conflict with interpretations of God's word, Christians are basically left with three options. Option one is to abandon our faith in order to accept the results of science. Option two is deny the scientific evidence to maintain our interpretations of the text. Or number three, we reconsider our interpretations of the scripture in light of the evidence found in God's creation. Now, as as believers, option one doesn't work, right? We reject option one due to faith. Option two has terrible historic track record, right? That we shouldn't be doing, and many prominent historical theologians have urged Christians not to ignore or dismiss the findings of science, which then leaves us with option three, which I believe represents a best practice for us as followers of Christ. And the cool thing about this is that history has provided many examples for us where our natural understanding of the world through science has helped us correct faulty interpretations of Scripture. For example, Galileo and his understanding of the earth not being the center of the universe, for example, changed the church's perspective on whether the Bible intends to teach us that earth and its place in the solar system are as it is. Now, I'm not going to go into all that, but science and our text can work together. And so because of this, we take God to be the author of nature as the creator of all things, as well as the defined divine author of scripture. And we believe that a correct interpretation of the flood story should not be in conflict with what we have discovered in the natural world and what we see in the text. Now, with that, though, we have to go, how do we do this, right? We read this, and it feels different from what we're seeing in our world today. 
Well, one of the most important things we have to do is consider when the Bible was written in its ancient context. The Bible, because of it, is a record of encounters between God Almighty and humans that lived thousands of years ago. Dr. John Walton, a biblical scholar, said this, the Bible was written for us all, but it was not written to us. And we get this, right? They don't call the book of Romans, Romans for nothing. It was written to the church in Rome. And when we read it, we need to first put ourselves in the place of the church of Rome before applying it to ourselves, right? And so for us to understand what Genesis means, we first need to understand what it meant to those who wrote and received it. Walton refers to this as a cognitive environment, that we need to put ourselves in the cognitive environment. And I love that. Now with that, we need to know that it was a common practice in the ancient world to use an event or a memory of an event to retell it in a figurative way to communicate a message to the hearers. And there's strong scriptural and historical evidence that the flood story is an interpretation of an actual historical event retold in the rhetoric and theology of ancient Israel. For example, did you know that the Genesis account is just one of many stories of catastrophic floods in the ancient world? The Babylonian epic called Gilgamesh, for example, bears a ridiculous amount of similarities to the story of the flood that we see in Scripture. Now, noting this doesn't mean that Genesis chapter 6 through 9 is just this borrowed story from other cultures, but more so that it's based on a common cultural memory of a watery cataclysm of that time. And so what this means is that the exact nature or date of this historical flood is not important to the meaning of the Genesis account. Because the purpose of the biblical story isn't to list every detail in fact about the flood, but to communicate a message about God, who God is, and to humanity and the original hearers. And what's cool is that by the power of the Spirit, we can also hear the story and understand God. That's what's so cool about scripture is that God can use it in that moment when it was written and through the spirit still communicate to us. Now, another thing to note when it comes to the study and interpretation of this flood story is that we find it uses many literary clues that its writers and original audience would not have intended to narrate as actual series of events and details. For example, the story uses a literary device called hyperbole. And a hyperbole is basically when you exaggerate in order to produce an effect or to make a point. It's like when we're getting ready to go on a trip and my wife goes to pick up my luggage and she says, this bag weighs a ton. Now, she is... uh, both acknowledging something, she's wanting to make a point, but the reality is, is it doesn't weigh a ton, right? She's not lying and she's not misleading me by saying my bag weighs a ton, but if I think she's being literal, then I'm gonna respond differently, which is why I wouldn't respond by saying, you know what, Jen, no, it doesn't. It only weighs 70 pounds, which is significantly less than a ton, right? Because she's using hyperbole. She's exaggerating in order to make a point. To, to give an effect. 
And we get this. We do this all the time. And the flood story, in the same way, uses a ton of hyperbole, describing a massive ark which holds representatives of every living creature on earth, and a flood which flows over the tops of the highest mountains in the world. These are not meant to challenge readers to figure out all the practicality of each description, but rather they are important clues that we are dealing with a historical theological story rather than detail-specific ancient journalism. Does that make sense so far? Are you with me? Now, I can't see you, so I have no idea if that's true or not, but hopefully you're with me. Now, without getting too theologically nerdy, I want to hit a couple other clues that our uh, story and our writers are not intending to relate every little literal event to us. One example comes from the command that Noah is given in how to treat both clean and unclean animals differently. Now, the reason why we need to note this is because those categories were not even given to the Hebrew people until the time of Moses, which came way later in the Bible from this biblical story. Another clue for interpreting this story comes from its place in the book of Genesis and specifically what's known as the primeval narratives of Genesis chapters 1 through 11. Stick with me on this. You see, biblical scholars almost universally see the first 11 chapters of Genesis as having a different purpose than the rest of the book. The primeval narratives cover a huge band of cosmic history and are highly figurative in the way they are written. They serve as kind of this grand poetic introduction to the story of God's people, which commences with the call of Abraham in Genesis 12, which we'll be looking at later in this series. Now, while they speak to real events, like the creation of the universe and special calling of humankind, they do so in rhetorical and theological ways that have more to do with the purpose of the story than a plain telling of facts. And the reason to note this is because this is completely typical of how ancient people, including the Israelites, wrote historical accounts, especially events near the beginning of history. So we need to read the flood story through the lens of ancient literature and context where it's placed in the book of Genesis, but we also need to consider cosmology. And you're all like, wait, what? Why? Well, because the ancient Israelites, like all people in ancient Near East, lack things like telescopes, satellites, and modern scientific equipment. So they pictured the universe as it appeared to everyday observation. So for instance, ancient Near Eastern people thought that rain comes from an ocean that's above the sky, which explained why the sky was blue. And that the ocean wraps around all the way around the earth, which explained why digging really deep wells always ended up hitting water. And they thought that the whole earth, that idea of the whole earth, was basically the edges of the current maps that they had, which mostly considered, considered um, the Middle East, right? Beyond that, they didn't go anywhere. That wasn't an understanding for them. 
So it's important to know this because the flood narrative relies on the same ancient understanding of the world. So as this expanse, this solid dome in the sky that holds this cosmic ocean in place collapses and the fountains of the deep explode upward, the earth experiences this cataclysmic return to the watery chaos described in the first few words of Genesis chapter 1. In other words, to deal with the chaos of sin that's going on in the world for our story, God returns the earth to the original chaos we see in Genesis chapter 1, described like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And note, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So what we see is then God restores order with a second restart, if you will, a renewal of all creation. And I love that we notice that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, and in our story, God is fully present in the midst of all the chaos. Now, hearing all this, it's really easy to see how we read the flood story with a completely different perspective on the shape of the earth and the universe. For example, those who say the story portrays a global flood, for instance, are imposing that term upon the text because the original audience had no idea the earth was even a globe at that time. In the same way, any assumptions about the water sources or the, the ark's buoyancy or, or geological effects or post-flood animal migrations, you name it, all these crazy details, getting caught up in that's missing the point of the story. In short, doing all of this isn't taking into consideration the ancient context of the story. So in light of all this, I know it's a lot and there's so much more, I want to just break down the story and look at it in a little more detail, remembering that it's part of a bigger literary unit, Genesis chapter 1 through 11. So here's my basic breakdown of the story. We start with Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 8. And there we see the divine reasons for this flood. If you remember, after Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil in Genesis 3, things become in this downward spiral. Humanity multiplied and, and violence continued to reign. Cain kills his brother Abel, one of Cain's descendants, became a man renowned for violence, boasting about his exploits in Genesis 4. Sin and evil were only intensifying all over the place. And then we get to just before our flood story in Genesis 6-5, and we get this description the Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. How's that for a description? And then we see in verse 6 that this reality of the state of the world caused the Lord to be grieved to the very depths of God's heart. He was sorry. Then we move on to the second section, chapter 6, 9 through 22. And we see God's instructions to Noah. We're introduced to Noah and told that he was a, a man, a righteous man, blameless, 
among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully or in close relationship with God. Verse 11 through 22 then continues, and God goes on to tell Noah the plan for this massive flood, instructs Noah to build this crazy big boat and to fill it with all of these animals and so on. And so in this section, we're introduced to the main characters of the story. We've got the earth, and it's completely messed up. We notice that the text says specifically that God is upset with all of the world, not just humans. And God says the whole world is corrupt, that sin has tainted the entire thing, that it's completely immoral, and that it's violent. And as a result, the earth and all of its inhabitants have a huge problem. We also notice that it describes Noah as righteous, which this does not mean he was perfect. And it doesn't mean that he always did everything correctly, right? What this means is that he was the only one trying. He was trying his best to obey God. And basically no one else was like this. Everyone and everything had given up on God. It's also interesting to note that when you read through all four chapters, six through nine, you will see that Noah never speaks. All the text says is in verse 22 that Noah did everything just as God commanded him. That's why he was righteous, because he was obedient. He had a fellowship, a relationship with God, and he tried to live faithfully out of that relationship. That's what he was trying to do. In the midst of everything else that was going on around him, he was the only one. So in all this, we learn that God sent the floodwaters as this kind of judgment, a block in the way of all humanity's wickedness that rose out of this grief and utter sadness of God's heart. And this is different from some of the other flood stories of the day, and the reasons for the flood stories of the day. For example, in one of these other stories, there are multiple gods, and those gods are annoyed at how noisy the overpopulated humanity had gotten, that they're so loud that they're causing the gods to have poor sleep. And so it's out of this anger that they just kind of wipe out the world. Here, rather, we see one and only God, the one and only God of Scripture, and he's not mad or angry, but grieved and full of sadness over sin. And God wants everything to flourish. So in many ways, it's as if God does a global baptism for all of humanity. We also see in this story that we are dealing with one God who is in charge and who clearly has a plan for the after effects. Well, in some of these other flood stories, uh, we have multiple gods involved and no plan whatsoever after the flood and zero relationship with creation or the animals or anything, which we're going to come back to in a moment. But the third component of our story kicks in after the instructions. Now we get the flood, which I'm not going to go through all the details, but in Chapter 7, 14 through 24, it says this. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings, pairs of all creation that have the breath in them, 
came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female, and every living thing as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. For 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The water rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark flooded on the, uh, floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 50 cubits, 15 cubits. Every living thing that moved on land perished, birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind, everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out, people and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. The only people who survived were Noah and those with him in the boat. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. So Moses does as God says and the flood comes. And then Genesis goes on to describe this flood as essentially a decreation of the world. Basically, the earth sinks back into the chaotic waters that God clearly described in the beginning of page one of the Bible in Genesis chapter six. And again, it's a much like a symbolic kind of baptism, but on a global scale. Which then takes us to the final section of the story which is God's covenant with Noah. So the floods come for 40 days, 40 nights. It's absolute chaos. But through it all, God is present with Noah, his family, and all these animals. God carries them through all the chaos, the waves, the flooding, probably hearing people dying, all in this ark, completely unharmed, all to start afresh in a world once again returned to innocence, it's this new beginning and a chance for a very different ending. And now we see that God had a clear plan in all of this. Look at what it says in Genesis chapter 7, verse 2 and 3. It says this, Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, <coughs> male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. So it's not just two by two that we often picture in our little kind of kid book. What it tells us is that God's plan was always to restore all creation, clean and unclean. And with all the animals Noah was instructed to bring, it allows him to give a proper offering, a proper sign of worship as a way to celebrate being saved. Not only that, but God then goes on to bless Noah, his family, and all the animals, and God then lays out this covenant that God initiates with Noah. He initiates it with Noah and with every living creature that was with him. And, and the, the, the covenant is that God would never again destroy earth by means of a flood. And as a result, the ongoing stability, the fertility of the world is now assured until the very end. 
God's blessing will sustain the world in the long term, even if evil enters back into it and works its kind of twisted ways into it, which of course we know has happened because we live and breathe the sinfulness that's in and around us every day. But this covenant is there. God initiates it with Noah and his people, and it's still present today. And it comes even with a sign, and that sign is that of a rainbow. It's a reminder of the covenant and all its promises and all its obligations, which we love here in Seattle because we get lots of rain, um, just like this morning. And, And so when we see those rainbows, not only is it just something of beauty, but it reminds us of God's promises. Now, let's just be honest. If you're like me, you read this story, you hear all this stuff, it's all nice, but at the end of the day, you go, but God still wipes out all humanity except one family and some animals, right? How does the flood reflect the goodness of God when he sent such a disaster on the earth? How do we explain that? I have three observations that I want to give us as we end, and the first one is this idea of mercy, Like it or not, the story echoes a truth that goes throughout the scriptures, and that is that God hates sin. And the story of the flood is ultimately one of God taking incredible, merciful action to restrain humanity's ever-increasing evil. Remember, Genesis 6-5 described the world as being uh, that of wickedness and that humankind was dealing with every inclination of thought was evil continually. That was what the world was like. And in the Bible, context means everything. And Genesis firmly anchors the meaning of the flood in the context of God's merciful intervention to stop humanity's headlong slide into more and more sin. The second thing we see that I think we need to be reminded of is this idea of grief, not vengeance. Thankfully, God doesn't take pleasure in the flood. It's not like he's celebrating and watching this and being like, oh, I love this. Rather, Genesis highlights how the wickedness unleashed by the fall caused him great sorrow and grief. God had made the earth to be a place where humanity could flourish, but instead they turned it into a world of violence and disaster, and God's heart is broken as a result. And so now, none of this story comes from a God of vengeance, and that becomes very clear as we look at the climax. And that is this this covenant, this curious end. Later on, if you go to uh, look at Isaiah the prophet, In Isaiah 54, verse 9, and he starts thinking about the flood, he doesn't think about those details in the story of Noah. Particularly what he focuses on is the covenant that he made with Noah. In that covenant, God promises that nothing like this will ever happen again. And it points to the meaning of the the story. The flood is about God's mercy and God's grace, and God's commitment to the goodness of what God has made in all of creation. And it teaches us that the flood wasn't an act of this malicious destruction by a capricious God. No, that's not it. 
God was acting to restore the goodness of his creation. God preserves the one person left who is actually trying to follow God in the midst of the chaos of the world around him and his family. God is faithfully present with them all through all the craziness of the flood and then elevates Noah as a new Adam placed once again in the garden in a high mountain paradise with the commission to be fruitful and multiply. Now, we know the story. Sadly, just as in Eden, instead of spreading God's goodness, Noah and his family begin to spread the disaster of human evil again in chapter 9 which then begs the question, how does Noah's story further God's plan of redemption? This is where Jesus comes in. The one life that's in our name, the one life we focus on that's transformed everything. You see, all of the Bible is a unified story that points to Jesus, and the story of the flood is no exception. Stick with me on this. We're almost done. Noah becomes this paradigm for the kind of leader we are awaiting, the righteous one. In a wicked age who enters the waters of death and comes out on the other side into a new creation, bringing about a new covenant of peace and life. The gospel writers use allusions of the flood story to confirm that Jesus is in fact the one they've been waiting for. And we see this in Luke 12, 50, where Jesus talks about a future baptism he must accomplish, which is odd because he had already been baptized. But as the story unfolded, it becomes clear that Jesus' death on the cross was in many ways this submersion under the dark waters of chaos. It's all symbolic. But this flood story has a very different ending. In the flood account of Genesis, the wicked died, and the one righteous person was spared. With Jesus, though, the wicked are spared, and the righteous ones sink beneath the waters of death, if you will. And unlike Noah, Jesus did not escape the flood alive. The waters of death rose and drowned him. Noah survived the flood by taking shelter in the ark. But in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, Jesus becomes a shelter and not just for his family, but for all of creation. Amen? It's this amazing story. The ultimate consequences for sin wasn't expressed by the flood. Instead, it fell on Jesus on the cross. And although the flood was violent, uh, it wasn't the work of a violent God. Rather, as we just waited with the season of Advent, and we now celebrate in Christmastide, our God is with us. Out of unconditional love, our God took on flesh, entered into humanity as a baby, lived a perfect life in the midst of all the chaos and sin around him in the world, and then later died a violent death, taking on all the sins of the world at the hands of violent human beings. A death that became the very means he would use to save his enemies and usher in an eternal kingdom of grace and peace, making all things new. It's this epic story from the beginning of the Bible to the end, all pointing to Jesus. And it's fitting that as we end thinking about the renewal of all things, 
and that God is with us in the midst of all the world's chaos, that it's also the first Sunday of the new year of 2021, where we typically make space to reflect on the past and dream about the future. And 2020 has been one of those years that we've all been like, I am ready to move on. It's a time where we think of those areas in our life, in our world that are not as it should be and commit to different ways of living that promote more of the flourishing that God intends everyone to experience. And so as we end, I hope in the midst of all these dialogues, all this crazy theological discussion that we can walk away with an invitation to consider the renewal of our relationship with Christ, to commit to the practice of prayer, to listening, to study, to applying our faith to our day-to-day life. And to not let the difficult passages of the Bible or our questions or our doubts or our struggles be enemies of our faith or things that we just try to avoid. Instead, let's take 2021 and commit to honestly engage with curiosity and humility, all those things so they may lead us to a deeper faith. And ultimately, a a, a deeper understanding and experience of God faithfully present with us today as we celebrate Christmas tide. Amen. Thank you for sticking with me. I know I just literally gave you a flood of content, no pun intended. But I, that's what you got. Hopefully you got something out of it. I do want to invite Brian. He's going to come up and play uh, for a moment to give us some space to reflect and think about the ridiculous amount of content I just gave you. Uh, and I would love your thoughts on it. There's going to be a link in the online platform form for our uh online connection card and that is a great way to share your thoughts and questions and wrestlings that you might have and uh, I just have a couple questions for you and I would love to hear your thoughts on them and then we'll take a moment to reflect and pray so question number one what's something new you learned from our study of this story anything what did you hear that was new number two in what ways did your views of this story change or get challenged today I had a bunch as I was studying, so hopefully you got something. Number three, as we think of this new year ahead of us and the story that includes a complete restart, what are some things you feel called to renew or commit to for the glory of God in 2021? Please take a moment to fill that out and share your thoughts. Uh, I also want to remind you that our prayer team is back live and available and would be honored to pray with and for you. All you have to do is click on that request prayer button and uh, they will connect with you in the order which your prayer was received. Um, But use this time to dream, to pray, to reflect, to respond, to make some commitments, whatever you want to do. I'm going to close our time with prayer. Then Brian is going to... uh, Lead us in one last song of response and then we'll move on with our day. So um, also one last thing, if you're looking for some great resources, I highly recommend the Story of God um, commentary by Tremper Longman. Um, That would be my first one to have you go to to read more on some of this stuff um, and Dr. Walton's work as well. I'm gonna close this with prayer and then we're gonna move on. Father, Son, Spirit, as we go all the way back to the first words of Scripture and we picture 
your spirit hovering over this world that was lifeless and void. It was just this dark water. Thank you that you were present there. And as the world started filling with people and inhabitants and animals and sin, you didn't leave. You remained present. And thank you for this story of Noah, this person who being challenged with a world around him that was doing all these things that completely forgot about you, trying his best in sorrow and mercy, you do a restart. You provide and protect. You have hope. You care for and you enter in and support. And even after that, as it, 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 was, it was pure craziness. You initiate commitment to your people and say I'm never doing this again I'm with you I'm with you to the very end no matter what comes up and we know from the scriptures and from life in general that things always come up and you've remained true to your promise you're with us and as we just ended a year 2020 that felt like one that just never ended, it was full of all kinds of craziness, we recognize that that truth is still the truth. As we have waited in Advent for your arrival, you have come. The story of your arrival is incredible. And we celebrate the goodness of your faithful presence. And we ask that you would be with us just like you were with Noah, just like you're with everyone in the Bible, just like you're with us every day, as close as our very breath, that you would continue to be with us as we step into this new year. Help us to be men and women who make choices to help uh, our world flourish as you hope it will. And God, that we would be uh, ambassadors to the very end with whatever wrestlings we have and questions that we have, that we would bring them to you and trust you with us no matter what. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.